Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England. Episode 121, Counter-Revolution. This week, we're suffering from my ill-discipline of last week, when I failed to polish off the Great Revolt. So this week, as well as a survey of the state of the church, we'll do that. Then next time, we'll get to a chap called John Wycliffe, and since he's an Oxford man, we'll spend a bit of time talking about the medieval university as exemplified by England's second-best university, the University of Oxford. So, we left Richard in triumph. Tyler was dead, the revolt in London was over, and he had covered himself in glory. Foissard relates that he went back to Mum's house and stayed for the whole day to recover. And yes, it is fair to say that the boy done good. He was 14 years old and all, and he'd seized the initiative and showed great courage when it needed to be shown. But the aftermath of the revolt will tell us more about the real man than the affair in London. The revolt might have been over in London, but it was not over in other parts of England. The chronicler Henry Knighton wrote, The hearts of all men in every part of the realm, however remote, trembled with fear of the rebels and everywhere it was fearfully believed that the rebels were about to arrive in person and without warning. John Ball, priest of the revolt, had not been found, and he had fled, heading north towards his birthplace at York. As he went, he wrote letters, some of which have survived, extorting his fellow rebels to remain true to the revolt and true to its principles, freedom, not the chance to get rich, with a bit of looting. In fact, the focus of the revolt remained in the south-east and East Anglia, and particularly Norwich in East Anglia and St Albans, just north of London in Hertfordshire. So far the rebels had almost completely held the initiative, but now at last the government started to take action. So on the very night of Smithfield, Richard got together with his best mates and gave them a commission. Walworth, Bremborough, Knowles and four others were instructed to, and I quote, Keep, defend, protect, rule and govern the said city, its suburbs and other places without. At our command, but according to your discretion, by the means which seem to you to be the most safe and expedient. Those who were found guilty were to be punished, and again I quote, either according to the law of our kingdom of England, or by other ways and methods, by beheadings and mutilations of limbs, as seems to you, most expedient and sensible. Now that, folks, is a pretty broad commission. It's the first indication that when Richard told the rebels that he'd be their captain and given out their writs of freedom and all, he might just have been telling porkies. 
in many areas, or at least outside Kent and East Anglia, where the revolt was now at its most active. The counter-revolution was reasonably mild. In London, Woolworth did carry out some executions. John Starling, for example, the butcher of Tower Hill, was beheaded. And let's hope that whoever did the job made a better fist of it than he had of Sudbury's. But actually, it turns out it wasn't entirely clear sometimes exactly what law people had broken. And although treason was supposed to be the hook that the rebels were hanged on, in fact, Edward III's statute of treason was very specific and not terribly helpful. So a number of prominent rebels got away with imprisonment or even got a pardon. Elsewhere, the earls of Buckingham, Salisbury, Warwick, Derby and Suffolk were sent out to various parts of the country, to the west, the Midlands and the north. But Essex, heartland of the revolt, was different. First of all, they didn't realise the extent of their defeat at Smithfield. They thought they were still in the game and that Richard was coming along to give them their reward. Meanwhile, William Courtney had already been appointed to replace Sudbury as Archbishop of Canterbury, and he had a plan. The plan was to send Richard himself into Essex in all his royal majesty, calling loyal men to him as he went. The resulting visit gives us an insight into Richard's attitude about the rebels and their aspirations. So off went Richard to the town of Waltham in said Essex. In front of him, messengers spread out, asking all loyal men to come to the aid of the king, and men duly began to appear in good numbers. In Essex, the rebels, as I say, didn't know they'd lost. So when Richard arrived, they started to bargain with him, demanding confirmation of their writs and the manumission of serfdom. This is what they heard in return. You wretches, detestable on land and sea, you who seek equality with lords are unworthy to live. Give this message to your colleagues. Rustics you were, rustics you are still. You will remain in bondage, not as before, but incomparably harsher. For as long as you live, we will strive to suppress you, and your misery will be an example in the eyes of posterity. However, we will spare your lives if you remain faithful and loyal. Choose now which course you want to follow. As it happens, the rebels in Essex were not ready to give up that easily. They summoned each village to bring their people, and they gathered an army, and gathered together in a strongly defended position at the edge of a wood, protected by ditches and chained carts. It did them no good. Thomas of Woodstock, or the Duke of Gloucester as we call him, was back and crushed the rebels. The rebels fled and tried again and again were beaten, and now by July it was all over. In the wake of Gloucester the agent of the law appeared and Judge Robert Tresillian. Tresillian was what they called a hanging judge, and his courts or assizes pretty soon came to be known as the bloody assizes. In his assize in Essex following the defeat, 19 rebels were hanged, a further dozen drawn and quartered. Elsewhere the rebels were meeting the same fate. In St Albans, where at one stage the abbey had looked under threat, the revolt was finally extinguished. 
In Norwich, the revolt, led by one Geoffrey Litzter, had looked particularly dangerous because the local nobility had begun to join in and there was the danger of a genuinely universal revolt. Enter the bishop, a fighting bishop, an Odo of Bayer, come here and let me give you a taste of my cudgel, bishop. Henry Dispenser, bishop of Norwich, had fled Norwich as the rebels took over, murdering the king's chief justice and also the prior of the abbey, sticking their heads on poles as was the medieval idiom, and going on the traditional rampage. Dispenser had but eight armed men, but with this small band he arrived at the Abbey of Peterborough, surrounded by a huge crowd baying for the abbot's blood. Given that it was a huge crowd, and he was vastly outnumbered, he did the only sensible thing available to him. He attacked. The peasants ran for it, some to the church, and the most remarkably and undeniably reverend Bishop of Norwich pursued them to the altar and cut them down. Dispenser's growing army of men marched to Cambridge and towards and into Norwich, nailing the heads of rebels to various village and town gates as they went. Ahead of them, Geoffrey Litster fled Norwich and gathered a ragtag army at a place called North Walsham in Norfolk. The fighting bishop attacked, fighting in the words of the gentle monk at Walsingham, gnashing his teeth like a wild boar. And the peasant army melted away in the face of such ferocity and armour. Geoffrey Litster was captured. The reverend bishop heard his confession, absolved him from all his sins, and as Litster was dragged from the scene, he carefully supported his head from banging on the ground. After all, you can get a nasty bruise that way. Then he hanged him from the neck, cut him down before he died, cut out his bowels, castrated him, burned his entrails in front of his eyes, cut him into four parts and distributed his parts to four corners of the realm. Bless you, my son. From there on, hanging Judge Tresillian became the norm in the south-east. The Royal Council sent commissions out to the shires. They offered royal assistance to landowners who were struggling to maintain prices and feudal obligations in the face of peasants' demands. Richard was not a happy bunny. Richard may well have said that he was the peasants' captain, but Richard was a Plantagenet. So being their captain meant he told them what to do and they did it, or they died. As royal judicial visitations went out to the counties, the death toll steadily mounted. There's no firm number, of course, this being the Middle Ages, but it seems to be something between 1,500 and 7,000 executed. Between July and November, England was ruled by fear, and judges like Tresillian toured the country, visiting a barely legal terror on the commons. A word out of place could do it. Just like a chap called John Shirley, who declared that he thought John Ball was a true and worthy man, and ended up being executed as a result. As the counter-revolution gathered pace, the counter-counter-revolution also began to appear, if you get what I mean. Essentially, the local gentry of the shires, the guys used to dealing with peasants day-to-day, really didn't like the way things were going, the viciousness of the response. They saw the resentment building up, the prospect of a divided society, and they realised this counter-revolution would be counterproductive, and however counterintuitive that might be, their local relationships still counted. 
so they began to send their objections back. In some cases, they met with the royal justices and offered to stand surety for the entire commons of their region, so that the visitation didn't have to go forward. In November 1381, all of this came together at the Parliament. The Parliament was called with the objective of providing money for the King, but it was dominated by the revolt, and a jolly bad-tempered affair it was too. Fair enough. They gave Richard their approval to cancel all those writs, but they sacked the new Chancellor, William Courtney. They pointed out that the Commons had a point. They were groaning under taxation and unjust purveyances for the royal household, and they demanded the reform of the royal household to lessen the load. So, let's draw a line under the Great Revolt of 1381 with a couple of things. Firstly, what it tells us about Richard. Remember, he's just 14, and the country is formally run by a council. During the revolt, he must have been very scared, and we can hardly blame him for fibbing to pacify the mob. And it is quite possible that Richard's feelings towards the revolting peasants are rather more complicated than they appear at first, and that his later behaviour rather colours our view of his approach. I think it is very likely that part of the mix is a paternalistic, romantic and idealised view of himself as the people's champion. The clearest evidence for this is his offer in the 1381 Parliament to free all the serfs on the royal domain if the lords will agree to do the same, although it is equally possible that he knew full well the lords would do no such thing. However, despite all this complexity, in pretty much every other way, we have a good old traditional, honest-to-goodness, no-poo plantagenet on our hands. The commons had got ideas above their station. And they should suffer for it. They had challenged the supremacy of the king and threatened his safety, and for that they must be punished. The second thing is our John Ball. John Ball never made it to York. He was recognised and captured at Coventry in early July and was sent to St Albans for trial. He got the hanging judge, Tresillium himself. The trial heard how Ball had been corrupting people for 20 years and how he was excommunicate, had incited the mob to take Sudbury's life. They read out one of his letters and Ball admitted to writing it. William Courtney rather decently interceded to give Ball a few days to repent, but there's no evidence that he did so. And on the 15th of July, John Ball was hanged, beheaded, disemboweled and quartered. The revolt had lost its spiritual leader as well as its political one. But John Ball left us with those two immortal lines. When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? And so to the second subject of this week's podcast, the Church. Religion is, of course, a constant part of our medieval story. And as I'm sure we've said before, it's impossible to understand the medieval mind without understanding religion. But in the later part of the 14th and early 15th century, the Church in England came under challenges that were quite exceptional in the English experience and which have often felt like a forerunner of the Reformation. Now the historiography of the Reformation, which is of course some way away, is very interesting. 
the traditional Protestant view, which I imbibed with my mother's milk, or in fact Cow and Gates formula milk or whatever, is that the Catholic religion was terminally and fatally ill, beset by universal cynicism, when the Reformation came along to save it. And then along came a historian called Eamon Duffy and made us look at it all again. And it's a bit the same in the late 14th century. People like Chaucer, Langland and Wycliffe all reflected the things that were wrong with the church. And there were many things that were wrong. But there were many things that remained the lifeblood of daily, personal and communal life. So we're going to talk about some of the changes in the English church through the 14th century. Before we move on next time to hear about John Wycliffe and the week after that to talk about the challenges that beset the church later in the century. By the way, I do tend to have a problem with this thematic stuff. With the political story, it's easy, it's sequential, I know what year I've got up to. With this stuff, I always have an uneasy feeling that I've told you all this before, so let me know if I'm repeating myself. In many ways, there are no changes to the good old church we've become used to. The role of the bishops was very much as it has always been. They remained a powerful magnate and political player, as well as a religious leader. While formerly a bishop was appointed by the cathedral chapter, the Pope had insisted since the 13th century that they had a right to override the local decision. But the relationship between England and the papacy was complicated, and it was particularly complicated by the Hundred Years' War. England distrusted a papacy that viewed France as the centre of the civilised world and that was based in Avignon, and particularly which often gave appointments in parishes in England to papal officials based in Avignon to give them an income. So Edward III had basically made it a matter of policy to refuse to give the papacy any rights over appointments and insist that it was the English crown who taxed the clergy, not the Pope. Into this dispute then came the Great Schism. The papacy in Avignon had become a byword for corruption and the reputation and prestige of the papacy was, as a result, at an all-time low. And so Pope Gregory XI boldly took the papacy back to Rome to try and re-establish its roots and independence. But when he died in 1378, the Romans reminded everyone that they had their very own brand of corruption and rioted to get themselves an Italian Pope, and duly got Urban. However, after mature reflection and consideration, the Cardinals were decided that Urban's application had not been correctly completed, and that he was a bad person to be Pope, and so they had a second go, and they elected a chap who called himself Clement. Which is fine, obviously, we all make mistakes, please forgive me, and it's better to make the right choice in the end, than stick with a mistake. Except, unfortunately, Urban was still around and he didn't agree that it was a mistake. And so Clement was forced to take himself off back to Avignon and we have two rival popes. For 40 years, from 1378 to 1418, and the resolution of the schism, the name of the papacy was dragged through the mud in a grand old bun fight. And it also gave the secular leaders of Europe a cast-iron opportunity to play politics at the expense of papal power and use each pope's desperation for recognition to extract advantages. 
So Europe settled down into two camps, with France and Spain cheering for Clermont in Avignon, and England and Flanders, and most of Eastern Europe, wearing urbanist colours. All of this meant a further dilution of papal power and authority in England. In the latter part of the reign, Richard passed two acts in Parliament to make sure he maintained control of appointments, and it's not until the early part of the next century that popes began to make it a serious attempt to reassert themselves. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By 1400, there were about 9,000 parishes in England. In principle, each parish had a celibate rector in its church, responsible for the religious life of the parish. Some of the battles of previous podcasts, such as the constant struggle to make sure priests didn't have a wife and family, had been largely won. The problems of sexual misconduct had not, with 16% of priests being accused of sexual misconduct, but at least the half-wives were gone. Other battles had not yet been won, such as the problem of absentee or poverty-stricken priests. So by our time, about one-third of parishes had been appropriated to the monasteries. This is because they then got all the revenue, the tithe, the income from the priest's land, and they'd appoint a vicar to do the job at a fraction of the price, and hence the vicar was pretty much destitute. During the Black Death, the death rate of priests had far outstripped the rest of the population. 40% of priests had died, as against, say, 25-30 to 30 of the general population. And the church had reacted with a major recruitment campaign, churning out priests from the universities to try and fill the gap. Despite this, they never quite managed it. And after 1375, there is a significant and sustained drop in the ordination of priests. So, in 1381, there were probably about 23,000 secular priests and 7,000 monks. Over the next 30 years, the number of monks stays pretty constant, but the number of priests falls to 17,000. And so the big loser in this was the poorer parish. But also, the reputation of the priest begins to suffer from their attitudes towards taking jobs. By the 14th century, the priesthood was more than ever a career as much as a vocation. And rather than work in poorer parishes and earn a pittance, many priests were tempted to go to London or serve in a chantry or act as a jobbing priest at a penny a mass. 
So I mentioned chantries, and one of the biggest and most obvious changes through the 14th century and beyond was the growth of chantries. What, might you ask, was a chantry when it was home? Or maybe you know, but anyway, a chantry is a foundation for a priest to say masses for the good of one's soul. Now this was driven by the need to help you get through purgatory after you died. The concept of purgatory had been around for a while, had been defined at the Papal Council of Lyon in 1274, and had then steadily taken off, until by the time that we're looking at now, the whole concept was totally mainstream. So the idea was that once you popped your clogs, you had to go through a period where the souls of those dying in grace needed to be purged of their remaining guilt. If you didn't die in grace, of course, you went straight to hell. Job done. But if you did die in grace, you had this period in purgatory. Now, time spent in purgatory was supposed to be jolly painful. Fire, brimstone, all that sort of thing. And we're talking a long time. You know, we are talking thousands of years. So people made a foundation at their death to pay for a priest to say prayers after their death because those prayers would reduce the amount of time they had to spend in purgatory. Chantras pop up all over the place, often attached to a church or a monastery. And the richer guys went for it big time. So William Courtney, for example, purchased 10,000 masses. That is a lot of mass. The growth of chantras reflected the characteristics of later medieval religion in a few ways. The first was the growing obsession in late medieval England with the mechanisms of religion. I don't know how many of you went through the purgatory that is Chaucer and his blessed Canterbury Tala, but as well as the pain I do remember the anti-clericalism it held. The one that sticks in my mind is the pardoner. Pardoners sold indulgences. An indulgence was again a way of shortening your time in purgatory, same mechanism as chantras. In principle, indulgences could only be sold to those who had confessed to their priest, and therefore shown their due repentance. But in practice, the whole thing became appallingly corrupt. Pardoners pretended that they could sell indulgences, including release from hell, not just purgatory. Even popes sold indulgences to finance their pet projects. Both Chaucer and Langland in Piers Plowman mocked and derided the venality of the church that all of this represented. Secondly, and a bit more positively, chantries also commemorated the founder's family, living and dead, who might come and hear the votive masses. To further celebrate and enhance a family's reputation, arms might be given at such events, or indulgences might be offered to anyone who attended the mass. Chantries demonstrate the importance of family in medieval world. And thirdly, chantries were all part of the shared religious life of the church. Their funding helped provide additional priests or extra chapels. Because whatever the problems and shortcomings of the late medieval church, the church and religion remained every bit as important a part of daily and communal life as it ever had done. Much of life centred around the church as we heard in the medieval year a few episodes ago. The whole community was responsible for things like the upkeep of the church and the churchyard, and had to work together to support the priest in doing so. 
to help with this shared responsibility, entire organisations called fraternities exploded in popularity in the late 14th century. So that by the time of the 15th century, there were over 30,000 of the things, which is incidentally three times the number of parishes. Fraternities were also ways for the less well-off to club together and get some of the benefits of the rich. So everyone paid a contribution, and the members would say prayers for their dead colleagues to help them through purgatory, or pay for a funeral, or establish chapels for their favourite saint. Fraternities brought vitality and resources into parish life where the numbers of clergy were falling. They gave the laity a role in religious life. The greatest mechanism of all, of course, was the Mass itself. The Mass was at the centre of power of the medieval church and the reputation and power of the priest. The ritual of the Mass reflected the vast gulf between the clergy as guardians of the great mysteries and the laity. Except for the odd occasion, community was only taken by the priest, not the congregation. The whole Mass was conducted in Latin and therefore incomprehensible to pretty much all of the laity and congregation. It was performed at the altar, behind the rood screen, and therefore out of earshot and view of the laity. It was only successful if all the words were correctly and perfectly performed, and therefore performed by a trained priest. And then added to all of this was the greatest miracle of all, the doctrine of transubstantiation, the process whereby the bread and wine was translated into the body and blood of Christ. So although there are many tracts designed to explain the mysteries to the laity, at the heart of the church was this great mechanism that made the clergy special, above the normal and ordinary. Challenge that, and the whole edifice could collapse. And how could we talk about the vitality of the church and the importance of religious life without talking about the pilgrimage? One that April, with his sure assorter, the drocht of March has persed to the rota, and bathered every vine in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor. When Zephyrus Acher with his sway to breath, in spirit hath in every halt and heath the tender croppis, and the younger sonna hath in the ram his halvicoseron. And smaller fules marken melodia, that sleepen alvenicht with open ear, so pricketh hem natur in her courages, than longen folk to go on on pilgrimages. So there we go, the prologue to the Canterbury Tala. Ah, pilgrimage, what a fab idea. I fully intend, one day, to walk from Canterbury to Santiago. I'll need six months and to lose my job, but it would be fun. Very often, pilgrimage started with a vow to the parish priest, from someone seeking forgiveness or the answer to a prayer. Destination sites were many and varied. Top of the range, the Holy Land. Much more likely, Santiago of Compostela in northern Spain, the place I'm going to go to one day. Or you could stay in good old Blighty, England. Top of the English sites was, of course, Canterbury itself and the shrine of Thomas Becket, but next best was Walsingham in Norfolk. 
Now, I figure that's not a well-known name, but it was massive. Edward III, for example, was always hopping off to Our Lady of Walsingham, and it was a site of genuinely European stature. But there are others, particularly Durham and St Cuthbert. In theory, at least, the pilgrim had special status, exempt from taxes, debts or arrest. People were supposed to help you along the way. Of course, the thieves and robbers pilgrims presented a wonderful opportunity, hence the need for pilgrims to travel in groups, and hence the Canterbury Tala. They'd get a badge for their pains, bearing the symbol of the shrine, and to show their status, said pilgrim would attach the badge to their hat and show off their travels with pride. Once at the shrine, the pilgrims would pay money to go and see the holy relic. At Walsingham, for example, we are talking about a sealed jar containing the Virgin Mary's milk. Yuck! Nails were very popular, and bits of wood from the True Cross another regular. Durham proudly boasted the body of St Cuthbert, but also the head of St Oswald. At Hales Abbey in Gloucestershire, they had a vial of Christ's blood. At Fécamp in Normandy, they had Mary Magdalene's entire arm, which is something of a coup, until St Hugh rather ruined it all by nibbling off a bit of her fingers, which was awkward. None of these, of course, competed with the big one, greater even than the holy hand grenade of Antioch. I speak, of course, of Christ's foreskin. The Holy Foreskin, as it was known, turned up in 800 AD when Charlemagne presented it to Pope Leo. It was an object of great popular veneration, as you can imagine. Indeed, like any relic, it was capable of performing miracles, so that even St. Bridget was able to report that when an angel dropped bits of it on her tongue, she had an orgasm, which it appears for St. Bridget was a 24-carat miracle. Again, I am forced to say, yuck. But there was a problem. We unfortunately get something of an arms race, or a foreskin race in this case, and a number of rival foreskins kept appearing until eventually there were 21 holy foreskins spread around Christendom. This means there was something of a glut in the foreskin market. And frankly, the church began to find it all something of an embarrassment, as monks kept appearing in Rome, demanding that the Pope make a ruling on which was the authentic foreskin. One theologian tried to solve the problem by claiming that the holy foreskin had in fact ascended into heaven and become the rings of Saturn, which is a nice theory. Eventually the church cracked, lost its temper, and in 1900 it became a crime worthy of excommunication even to talk of the holy foreskin. And I await my bull of excommunication as we speak. And I am aware of going for cheap laughs. It's probably a bit unjust of me, and I am fully aware of going for the cheap laughs. But I can't help but find the whole holy foreskin problem enormously amusing. It's childish of me. After all, it's just another part of the body. So I apologise. But I give notice that any foreskins found lying around my house will be binned rather than venerated. But relics, of course, were no joke. On the one hand, they were a way for the faithful to find a connection to God, an object to channel their devotions. And of course they were the channel also to miracles, and therefore why many pilgrims went to see them in the first place. On another, they gave rise to the most stunning artefacts, so the reliquaries that the objects were housed in can be amazing. And another big thing was of course the roaring economic impact of the pilgrimage. 
all those pilgrims travelling around needed feeding and putting up for the night. Every pilgrim who arrived at the shrine would make a donation or pay. There was even a trade in the relics themselves that the church deeply disapproved. But of course Calvin, who was something of a killjoy, was to famously poo-poo the whole shebang. It would then be seen that every apostle had more than four bodies, and each saint at least two or three. So no doubt we'll come back to relics at some point many years in the future, but for the moment, let's leave the church where it is. Next week we'll talk more of religious turmoil, we'll talk of John Wycliffe, and use that as an excuse to talk about the medieval university. Grateful thanks to donators, to Derek, and looking forward to that complimentary copy, to Brind, to Mark, very grateful thanks, and to Amy with genuine excitement. And as ever, thanks to everyone for listening, to all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck everyone and have a great week.